0: Welcome to another YouTube episode of Experts. And once again, I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Freddie Wilde and Tom Moody, uh, dotted at various points around the globe. Maybe not so much this time, but today we're going to talk about uh, the wicketkeeper batsman or batsman wicketkeeper and the impact that they've had on the modern game. I'd say good afternoon to you, Freddie. How are you keeping?
1: Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Bish. And uh, good to have you over here in the UK. How are you coping with um, <laughs> or isolation after arriving here?
0: Um, it is what it is. Um, I used to think that isolation was made with me in mind when um, when I had to engross myself at home for a couple of months, but um, I- I'm ready to get out of the house now. Uh, but we leave that where it is. Tom, how are you?
2: Yeah, well, thanks, Bish and, and Freddie. Yeah, no, certainly no isolation here at the moment, but uh, probably going to be in the- a similar position in a few weeks' time when... The CPL looks like it's going to, you know, kick off in the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, well, that's great news as well for West Indies cricket. With the Test series starting uh, very, very shortly, Uh, we have the pleasure of having had Freddie do an excellent interview with Adam Gilchrist, the former wicketkeeper batsman, who gave us some valuable insight into how he came through the system, what his thought process was as far as batting and keeping a concern, and maybe a little bit about his impact on the game. Have a listen.
1: Hello and a very warm welcome to none other than Adam Gilchrist, a man who played 96 tests and 287 ODIs, winning three World Cups and single-handedly transforming the role of wicketkeeper batsman Gilly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are things with you, and how have you been coping in lockdown? Yeah, you know, Freddie.
3: Uh, yeah, great, great to chat, mate. Um, how's things going? Look, we're we're in Perth, uh, Western Australia, which is. I think, commonly known pre-COVID as one of, if not the most isolated city in the world. Uh, And all of a sudden, we're really, really thrilled about that. We are (laughs) um, in a situation where we're in our own little bubble. And I must say, um, we're almost, life's almost, day-to-day life is almost back to normal. Now, I say this with the utmost respect and acknowledgement of everything that's going on around the world. And it's not a case of sort of uh, rubbing anyone's nose in it. It's, it'd be foolish to think that um, anything uh, won't turn up and who knows, you know, three, three months ago, we wouldn't have ever believed anything that anyone has told us was about to transpire. So no, we're, we're, we're all good, mate. We're, um, we're sort of, we did the initial bunk, bunker down like everybody and just try to roll through it. We've, I think we've been very well led with our uh, state uh, government. And, uh, and look, I think the, you know, I think any government really is probably tough to criticise too much in that it's the first crack at this. It's the first time we've all had a go at this. So um, you know, maybe hindsight might be a nice thing, but through the initial stages, um, things are going pretty well for us.
1: OK, yeah, well, that's good to hear. Obviously, Moods is a fellow West Australian, so we've been hearing some positive yeah. updates from him as well during lockdown. But um, today we're going to have a chat, um, obviously, about wicketkeeping, um, about your career uh, and, and your influence more broadly on the role of, of the wicketkeeper batsman. Um, yeah. t- to start off, we're going to go back to the beginning. And, and obviously, when you started your, um, your, your career, you came into the Australian team um, replacing Ian Healy. You had some big, big shoes to fill there. How 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 did how do you feel coming into that position um, and how did you manage to sort of deal with that and take it in your stride, I suppose? Yeah, I, I
3: guess go, go, when I think of that, I, I, I tend to probably go back one foot, step further and reflect on my time. When I'm, I moved from New South Wales over to uh, Western Australia, uh, I played a, a couple of patchy seasons for New South Wales um, just as a batsman. Phil Emery was a wicketkeeper there uh, doing a great job. He was captain in the absence of Mark Taylor, who was obviously away on the national team, and and whenever the national boys were away, uh, I got a game as a batsman. A whole lot of us did because there were so many Australian players in that New South Wales team. Uh, but when they came back, we all got punted out the back door, which is totally understandable. And and I played 10 games, didn't do particularly well, wanted to wicket keep. So I moved over to Perth, and, and that's where it got a little bit interesting. Tim Zura, a former... Uh, international cricketer, a, a great servant to Western Australia and indeed Australian cricket for a while there. They flicked him, the state selectors here in WA, and put an unknown New South Welshman in there you know, by the name of Adam Kilchrist. So <laughs> I copped a barrage uh, from the crowd, very parochial, West Australian crowd. Um, even the members were giving it to me. They weren't sure what was going on. But I remember at the time just thinking, I don't need to be Tim Zura. I don't, you know, and he was a, a very athletic Um, attacking batsmen down there at number seven, scored hundreds in first-class cricket. But um, I remember just thinking I don't need to be him. All I need to do is, you know, the foundation of hard work and try to earn the respect of, first of all, my peers within the team and then hopefully if you get that, that will probably mean that you start to garner some respect from the crowd. So that was the first step. All of a sudden, excuse me. A couple of years later, I find myself in a very similar situation with uh, Ian Healy, the one that's been left out at at um, uh, at the expense of me coming in, and I walk out of the Gabber and get booed all the way out on the Gabber and um, so I remember just again just thinking, I, I idolised Ian Healy. I, I, I you know loved watching him play. I you know that my early teenage years. Um, just observing him and, and just dreaming of being in that position. So when I got there, I, I just thought, right, don't need to be him, uh, but just learn everything I can from him and try to, again, garner that respect from my teammates and then hopefully the crowd. So I didn't have any designs on trying to just be the best wicketkeeper that was available for the team at that time. And I, I had – enormous um, support from the team that was around me. And um, nonetheless, Shane Warne, which was that was always going to be the toughest job and the high profile job. Um, You know, I went to him early and just said, look, clearly you need a good relationship. Um, Keep a bowler relationship. And and we worked hard on trying to forge that, um, getting that understanding out on the field.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned that you, you were sort of trying to be the best wicketkeeper you could be. Yeah. Um, I think broadly speaking, you know, at the end of your career, everyone looks back at, at how you transformed the role of a wicketkeeper because not only were you an effective wicketkeeper, but you became obviously someone who contributed massively with the bat. When you yeah. were coming up, even as a kid or when you came into the side or maybe even during your career, did you sort of think or, or look at the role of wicketkeeper and think, well, everyone just thinks we should just be there to wicketkeep. I want to be there to contribute with the bat and the gloves and sort of, you know, almost... Um, and did you want to change the role of a wicketkeeper? Was it something that you consciously went about doing?
3: Yeah. Look, I think uh, I would take it back to that one-day cricket created that um, situation or the the job description for the wicketkeeper changing. I think it it it, it has slowly, you know, one-day cricket initially, and then now T20 cricket. That's that's really or limited overs cricket really has has influenced any other position other than the top six batsmen that they had to start to can be considered that they're able to contribute with the bat because you know just by very fact of the the definition of of the title limited overs there's a limited amount of deliveries that we need to cash in on here with the bat and often in in these games you find that it's the bottom sort of four batsmen or batswomen that that get left to try and score so so that's where the momentum started to change um I then probably was a beneficiary of the 1996 Sri Lankan team that yeah. really started to change tactics by shuffling Kalawatana up the top of the order. So get the keeper up the top, and particularly um, if he's a real dasher and a really positive player to try and capitalise on that 15 overs. Uh, and then, you know, inevitably it just became part of the makeup of a wicket keeper. But, but I, I didn't sort of, I just loved batting. I loved batting and I loved wicket keeping and I, I don't recall sitting back thinking, gee, I'm a, either I want to uh, go out there or I need to or I'm about to change the face of what the wicket keeper, you know, position is made up of, what, what attributes and skills you need. I just just wanted to play my cricket and bat, um, bat as well as I could every time I could. And I, I guess I always had that attacking instinct in my batting um so that went nicely into the limited overs format which was my springboard into the test team
1: yeah and 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 what were the challenges involved in you know being an elite level wicketkeeper and an elite level batsman obviously you know that's often a challenge faced by all-rounders who bat and bowl um, yeah uh, how did you go about sort of balancing your training with regards to both of them um, particularly yeah. in that Australian side as well. It was quite a team of specialists in that there wasn't a sort of um, figurehead all-rounder in the way that, you know, someone like a Flintoff or a Callis. It was actually yeah. you, you were that guy, I suppose, who had to train with the bat and with the gloves. How did you manage to go about balancing that um, with yeah. your practice?
3: Yeah, well, my, my, there's, I don't know that there's any scales that when it's 80%, 20% that you say that's balanced, but that, that was how I balanced it up, 80% training on wicket-keeping and 20% on batting. Um, but I think that was probably just uh, surely the fact that the batting came a little bit more naturally uh, and I had to work a bit harder, uh, albeit I enjoyed the work and I, I was very, you know, I loved the job and the role. I never saw it as a chore, uh, those hours of wicket-keeping practice, but that was just, and I guess at the end of the day, you've got 11 batsmen in a team. You only have one wicket-keeper. So I, I really valued that position and wanted to train as, as much as I could to to try to fine tune that. Um, I'm sure every all-rounder, traditional in the sense of the word all-rounder, you know, a batting all-rounder or a bowling all-rounder, I'm sure they would have their own opinion of what they think they are, Uh, and then there's a public opinion or perception, and that's no different for me. Uh, As I say, I put in 80% of my training time to wigger keep, but it seems the batting is most often talked about. I get that. That was... um, you know, a lot more dynamic and interesting and, uh, and you know, I made mistakes with the bat but I also made them with the gloves but you're the only one keeper in a team and you make a mistake, it, it gets noticed. And and I came in behind a, one of the best ever for Australia, uh, if not one of the best ever in the world. Uh, and, you know, you say there's an easy way, it's easy for anyone to start to sort of judge my game against the two facets and work out what they think is the most valuable or the the strongest contribution. And I I don't really get hung up on it. There was probably a little period there where I was a little bit sort of trying to prove my worth as a wicketkeeper because everything was focused on the batting. But by the end of it, not not at all. And, And now, you know, you don't really care too much. You're just nice to be discussed and remembered.
1: So did, 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 I mean that's interesting uh, the, the 80-20 split I wasn't actually sure which way you were going to say you focused more on it but and yeah. did you, did you see yourself as a wicketkeeper who could also bat rather than a batsman who wicket-keeped was that the sort of way you, view, you viewed it personally?
3: That That's that's the way yeah spot on that's the way I motivated myself and, and that was my incentive and everyone you speak to will say oh, I was a, you know, a batsman that was a wicket-keeper yeah um, and I understand that. I, I get it. I'm not offended by that at all. But uh, you know, and I, it is a delicate one, I suppose, for some people in in the prime of their career to, if they have to sort of wrestle with that, or if they feel like they're being tarnished, or you know, um, people comment whether they should sure or shouldn't be in the team. I, I was just trying to do the best at both of them. I just knew that I needed to to work harder at my wicket keeping, and I saw that as my primary role. Um, you know. Uh, a clean slate with the gloves and not many runs. I probably took that over, you know, a hundred and a few drop catches. Um, whether, whether that affected the outcome in your favour or not for the team, I'm, I'm not sure. But when you got home and thought about it, uh, what to me was most important was the job with the gloves.
1: Yeah. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, speaking to Warney early on um, and him, you know, sort of striking up a relationship with him. Um, what was it like to keep to him and what were the sort of challenges involved in keeping to to him and I'm sure sometimes you know there there might have been sort of uh, signals between him and you in terms of what he might bowl but were you able to pick him and 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 how did that fit together across your career as you kept more and more to him I'm assuming you became more and more familiar with um, you know sort of his his um, his gives and, and and what why he might go to certain deliveries at certain times and that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, that's, you, you said the word there, Fred, uh, familiar, familiarity. That's that's a keeper-bowler relationship, just the, the more time that you wicket-keep to someone. And, and be it Warren or, or McGrath or Gillespie, Jason Gillespie for a significant amount of time, Brett Lee. But let's say Warren and McGrath were the two absolute standouts through that era uh, and the most regular guys there. You just become familiar with them because you're keeping to them so much uh, more so Warnie in practice uh, as, along with games, but, um, you know, quick bowlers don't do a lot of keeping to them in practice, you know, standing back a little bit of centre wicket occasionally, but but particularly earlier on in the relationship, I think that's, as I say, give credit to Warnie and, and give credit to myself to, to identify that that needed to be done, those extra sessions um, in the nets once everyone's sort of finished, just... Saying to Shane, just bowl me six of every delivery you got, you know, just so I can look at it, get familiar with the release, where you are on the crease, uh, and 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 fortunately, yeah, I could I could pick Warnie out of the hand uh, pretty well. Um, any batsman that's faced him will tell you that that doesn't guarantee anything. You're still got to be in the right position to do something with it once you know where it's going, and and you know it might spin. Uh, that natural variation might turn and bounce a lot more than what you anticipate so there's still a lot of the job to be done even though you might have picked him but um, but then you know through the through the nuances of, a, of a, an over or a, a spell against a certain batsman again you become familiar with what they're trying to do what they're trying to work on what area they're working on and 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 that became conversational too and I would encourage any you know keeper, out there in working with their bowler, get in on the conversation um, just to, to find out. and initially for me as a, as a new sort of rookie or younger player, I didn't go to Warnie and say try this, try that. I'd just go and say why are you doing that? What are you thinking? Try to f- just try to learn what the philosophy was or what the tactics were and then, and then hopefully you can help be, be part of that knowledge base somewhere down the track that might have a positive effect.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting to say that because I remember I think Matt Pryor before has um, spoken about how he's offered advice, you know, to guys to like to Anderson and Broad. You know, you yeah. guys, wicket keepers, end up watching bowlers almost more closely than any, well, pro- yeah, than anyone really. Yeah. Um, even in, even the coaches and mentors, because you know you're there behind the stumps all the time. Um, so I guess yeah, you end up playing a big role in their careers in a way as sort of someone to talk to about how they are bowling.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not just spinners, but uh, like Matty said there, the seam bowlers, swing bowlers, um, you know, any information you can help out with is, is vitally important. But, but again, yeah, that, that key word that you knocked uh, on the head early, but just get familiar with them. The more hours and overs and deliveries you can keep to them, um, the better that relationship and understanding will be.
1: Yeah. And, and um, it's interesting, you, again, going back to that 80-20 split, and then sort of, I suppose, more broadly, how across or since your career, certainly, wicketkeeper batsmen have probably been asked, uh, and I'm not, not blaming you in any way for this, but they've been asked to score, you know, to score more heavily, I think, because of the way that, you know, you, you contributed so um, significantly with the bat that it's almost created higher expectations of wicketkeeper batsmen. Do you think that um, the sort of balance between wicketkeeper training and batting training for keepers has changed and, and maybe is wicket-keeping potentially being neglected as a result of, you know, thinking like, like for England, for example, in the last few years, we've had Johnny Burster and Josh Butler alternate with the gloves yeah. a bit. They're sort of yeah. half-keepers, half-batsmen. And I wonder yeah. whether they work on their keeping as much as you did um, and, and what you think about that sort of balance as, as the game moves forward.
3: Yeah, funny one. That, I mean, that's a good example that there'd been quite a churn of of English wicketkeepers wasn't there in the search initially I, I assume that most if not all teams particularly at the international level you know when they start the search or there's time for a, a change they they do ideally hope to to get their best gloveman there and and hope that he's capable of contributing whether it's you know we don't all have to try and aspire to average 50 or 40 or 35 or whatever it is but I, I'm sure I assume that's the, the objective of the of the selectors but Um, you know there there then becomes that sort of hastiness that that can also the vision can get a little bit blurred as a result of T20 cricket and and one day cricket as to what someone else is achieving in that format and do we get him in and is he going to contribute more so um, it's a a difficult balance I, I think everyone probably understands that the, the the old traditional, you know, and I think of county cricket in particular, but it happened in first-class cricket all around the world, that that gloveman that was just, you know, pure and smooth and, and just does not miss a thing, but sort of only averages, only can offer sort of 10, 15 average with the bat, they might be going to struggle. They may well very much struggle uh, in this day and age. So um, instantly you know, earlier on in careers, kids will focus on their batting. So perhaps the the wicket keeping, you know, that, that deep down, um, long, arduous hours of skill work and training might be a thing of the past. Tim Payne would question that. He, I think he's – but I guess he's almost from a, a generation before the players now, isn't he, because of his time out of the game. That's given him longevity to still be in the game. But – He's a very, very hard worker and thorough. Brad Haddon was. Uh, MS Doney, I don't know, I reckon he was 90-10 the other way. He batted for 90% of the time and barely put the gloves on at training. So, But, um, you know, it was very, very, very effective, particularly to the spinners up over the stumps there. So um, each player will find their own niche and their own volume that they need, but... Um, yeah, you, as a general statement, I think, and I, I, I don't think that's a legacy of my game. I think that's again more to the point that I made right at the start that white ball cricket and limited overs cricket is what has slowly led the whole momentum shift to that type of player.
1: Yeah, sure. And 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 moving on to your batting, um, not only did you contribute with the bat, but it was the way that you contributed often um very fast scoring uh, both in white ball and red ball cricket um be interested just to have a sort of little bit of insight into your approach when you were batting why was it that you were the sort of attacking aggressive player that you were was that something that came naturally or something that you looked to do because of your role in the side um yeah so the sort of the thought behind your approach would be interesting to hear more about
3: yeah i, I think step you know pegging it right back to the foundations of the game when i learned the basics. My father had the biggest influence on me as a as a, a really young junior player, and uh, not in any way in you know, a forceful manner or pushy manner. It was me with a big appetite, and and him with a um, a, a matching appetite to want to just throw balls and teach me things. And he loved cricket and was a, a fine cricketer in himself. And and I was the youngest of four kids, of which all the older siblings loved cricket as well. So, uh, but. I do remember my dad always trying to lay the technical foundation without going over the top, but whenever we finished a a training session, he always just said, right, last 20 I'm going to throw to you, just whack it, just hit the ball, just slog it, don't care about shape of technique, don't care what the result is, but just try and feel the ball, uh, that sensation of the ball flying out of the middle of the bat. And You know, out of those 20, you might miss it a dozen but you might catch eight of them right in the screws and you go, okay, that's that's like, that's <laughs> like the first goal shot, isn't it? Which I'm still searching for, but that decent drive, that keeps you coming back for more. So um, that was Dad and that was a lasting legacy and, and probably a, a memory in my mind about why you're playing the game. Um, and then I think, yeah, it's just that was probably cast my mindset. But I also think too, to an extent... Maybe uh, being attacking right from ball one probably had a little bit to do with being a little bit nervous, um, and that was my way of sort of trying to get into an innings was just take it on rather than just sit there and, and ease into it and feel like you might be get dominated. That's what I loved about opening in the one day is uh, it was, I found it a much more relaxing way to start the game because you walk out there, it's, it's none for none, You know, an opening bowl is running for the first ball and you've got a chance to sort of set the tone, whereas typically, particularly in test cricket, walking in, um, you're walking in when the opposition has just taken a wicket. So just on that very um, uh, event, they're sort of a bit more up and about and energetic, so you're sort of a little bit on the back foot and under siege. So maybe there was a natural sort of uh, of, uh, defensive mechanism was to be offensive and... Great when it works, looks great. You get all applauded, but often you know didn't, and you get chastised for being too attacking or ill-disciplined. But there, there, the, that's the balance you got to try and work out through your through your career.
1: I mean, that's interesting that you say that sometimes it doesn't work and, and you're going to get criticised. Quite often, um, when we talk about mental strength in cricket and particularly in batting, we talk about guys yeah. who knuckle down and can bat the long, you know, for a long time and sort of basically resist temptation. I think that in some respects that's a little bit simplistic. I think there's a, an element of mental strength to, to backing yourself and playing with sort of self-belief. How did that um, influence your own approach in terms of telling yourself to to play a natural game and were you ever sort of at times dissuaded from being aggressive because of failure in the past? Because it, it certainly didn't seem like that.
3: Yeah, no, well, the one time that jumps right out at me and, and, and two examples and they both happened in the 2005 Ashes that, that was – my, my one time where I was absolutely um, being strangled by self-doubt and and fear of failing and um, you know just that it, it felt like that the England team and Vaughn and and Freddie obviously more so with the ball but even that whole attack um, the field positioning the tactic of coming around the wicket which I don't think was necessarily ever a uh, you know, a, a well thought out, clever tactic in a, in a sort of meeting room. It, it just came about, but they were quick enough to realise that and latch onto it and make adjustments. And I wasn't able to. So that was the first time I remember going into games, particularly up at, by the time we got up to, you know, the third test at Manchester, um, going in there where we had to try and bat out that last day to, to salvage a draw. Uh, just being so feeling so unnatural and fighting my natural instinct but through fear of it not working and then trying to just occupy the crease and that was never going to work so that's probably the the primary time in my career where I really felt as I say suffocated by some self-doubt and uncertainty and on the flip side of that I agree with what you say it's not just the the guy that can bat the long, drawn-out match innings to save a test or or even to set up a test. It, the flamboyant ones need that mental strength. And on the last day of that series, Kevin Peterson's, you know, ability to walk out there, the stroke of good fortune, you dropped early, but then preparedness to take it on and just basically take, you know, that day, that game and that trophy away from us um, on the back of a hell of a lot of other good work from his teammates. That that's courage, and we saw that through through his whole career. So um, he knows the roller coaster as well as anyone about being criticised for being too flamboyant, playing the wrong wrong strokes at the wrong time. But but gee, um, he harvested a fair career out of taking it on and being mentally game to do that.
1: Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned that you said you know at one point. Um, you know, if you were going to, there are sort of thoughts in your mind that suggested maybe you should knuckle down, but that was never going to work. It's interesting you say that because is that sort of an admission, really, that when you are under the pump, the best thing to do is to go to your natural game. And I think I remember um, I was a very, I think I was about 12 years old and I was in, um, in Perth in 2006 and saw your century of 50 odd balls. That, and I think in the first innings, you'd got a duck in that test and then yeah. sort of almost came out and just threw caution to the wind. And you know, and, and played this remarkable innings. Is that something that you sort of sort of resonates with you? I suppose is just going back to what comes natural to, naturally to you when you're under pressure. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the biggest thing, and it's not, you know, hopefully not wild
3: slogging that reckless that he's going to you know increase huge risk. But you know, that's just whatever your style is, but and, and trusting that foundation. And yeah, without doubt, that innings was an innings that took me back and reminded me, uh, people say, was that your best innings? And I said, no, nah, it wasn't my best innings. I, I got lucky getting off the mark. Freddie round the wicket, funnily enough. Um, big, thick edge, trying to hit a back foot drive too early in the innings, but um, took it on and it went through a vacant sort of gully wide slip area, got four, and then I sort of thought, well, that's a stroke of good fortune. And then next ball was very similar. I remember I actually just switched on a bit and, absolutely cream his back foot cover drive sort of punch through the offside right out of the middle of the bat and I remember just sort of thinking jeez that is that feeling that I spoke about when dad used to say right just whack the ball just hit it get that you know those eight out of 20 or whatever it was um out of the middle and it was a great feeling and uh and that innings wasn't my best innings but it was the one that reminded me about what why we play the game and what what batting's all about so that that was a nice reminder after a, a challenging twelve months or so after that
1: '05, where it took me a while to to get going again. Yeah, and and then um, after your test career, or international career was over. You, you played um, some some IPL and some T Twenty cricket, uh, yeah. and obviously you you won the IPL with with the Deccan Chargers. You um, you had a successful IPL career. How does um, how did sort of T Twenty align with your your own style of play? Because it seemed to be the perfect fit. Um, for you as an aggressive, sort of dynamic player? Yeah, I I mean, it's funny. I watch
3: it now and I, I wonder. I sit and it, – it's it's a different beast again already. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, – I've been out of it for, I think, six years since my last IPL, certainly, but, you know, out of international career for 11 or 12 years. So, uh, yeah, it's – it was um, – a game that people would say oh, I was designed for your style of play. And, and it was it was great fun to go. I think I was still in that that um, phase where we were all still learning what quite the right approach is. Is it, you know, just go out there hammer and tong and don't care about wickets? Is it be a bit more conservative? Do you cash in on the power players? And all those little things that have slowly become a bit more formulated and a lot, a lot more uh, because – the very weight of the amount of games that have been played, everyone's um, learnt more about. So I felt like I was a bit through the, the sort of that guinea pig area and time, but uh, loved it. It was great fun. Obviously, it did my game was suited to it in that I was able to. People expected you to be aggressive, and you had a bit of a license uh, to go out there. And um, yeah, but I see it, it, it's, it's a different, more tactical approach nowadays as it across the board of a tournament of a team and uh it's a, it's intriguing to watch I, I still love the the tactics in there it, it might not be so evident for those that haven't played it. they might think it's just a bit all hit and bash but there are some um, there's some major tactical plays in there particularly as a captain i think strategy is and decision making is as tough as any stage in test cricket because you've got so little time to make your decisions so uh, yeah, I, I, I love that period of time. But, um, you know, my, my style of T20 cricket was probably a little bit off the mark to what's going on now.
1: <laughs> you say that, but I think, you know, again, just going back to what we spoke about, mental toughness, I think um, even as the game has become, you know, uh, slightly more tactical, that element of still throwing caution to the wind and, and basically backing your, your game probably still rings true. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a batsman under the pump in T20, rather than knuckling down, the best thing to do quite often is go for the aggressive option.
3: Yeah, yeah, and you're right in that. Probably the top four in T20, and that's the expectation, isn't it? The top four are the guys that, well, not only the expectations there, but they're the ones who've got the opportunity to go big, or, or you know, relative to a T20 game, get the big score, that the eighty plus. Um, Whereas, and, and that is the challenge where if you've had a run of a few low scores, can you keep going out there and try to capitalize on that, on that power play? Or are you just going to try to get a, a 40 or a 50 to make sure that you're back in the run, sort of thing? Um, whereas that sort of five, six, seven, eight are more often in a situation where they know they've only got about 20 balls, 15 balls to make an impact. So, yeah, the, the, the mental battle uh, at the top, in that top three or four in a T20 game, um, it's challenging. It, it takes a lot of courage to keep fronting up and uh, on the back of, you know, a few few low ones.
1: Yeah. And, and, and last question, Gilly. Thanks a lot for your time. But um, for, if you were to be um, giving some advice to a, a young wicketkeeper batsman, obviously we spoke a little bit earlier about the, the challenges involved in um, balancing your wicketkeeping and your batting and, and practising both. What would, what would that advice be to, to any young wicketkeeper batsman looking to make their way in the game? Oh, I th- I think, well, we spoke out, work out what
3: your balance needs to be, work out what workloads you need to, to do at training or, or in between games. So whether it's one session that you have in between your, your club game or or two weeks, or if it's first class career, you know, on your training days, just work out what time you need to apply to each mode of, or each each um, facet of your game. And you know, the sooner you can work that out, uh, and, and that may, to, to work that out, it might come down to um, probably just when you're doing your drills, whether it's hitting balls, getting throwdowns in the nets, or, or you're taking catches, keeping the spinners, you'll find there's a point where you start to not just lose concentration, but lose the enthusiasm for it, or the intensity drops off that's probably about the point where you go, okay, stop there. Now, how much was that? Was that 10 minutes? Was it five minutes? Was it 15 minutes? Um, and then you just start to gather a bit of that information. And, but that, whatever you're doing, do it really well and do it with intent. And as soon as it, that intensity drops off, you probably stop doing it because it's it's just sort of false hustle really after that. so well, and, and it might mean you have a five-minute break and then go back to it. But That'll help you work out what balance you need to get between your batting training and your keeping training. And so often, you know, just because you miss out with the bat a few times, it's very easy to go, right, I'm going to – don't worry about my keeping. I'm just going to do batting all session, all session. But that's, again, another mental challenge that you got to say, oh, hang on a minute, there's only one keeper in the team. I better make sure I still do that. Um, so I probably – that's probably my – my advice uh, hopefully you enjoy both aspects but um just work out that balance for you individually what you need to do
1: yeah. all right gilly thank you so much for your time today it's been really interesting pleasure, um and hopefully uh i can be working alongside you in a commentary box soon on some live cricket that would be um that'd be very satisfying thanks a lot for coming on the show yeah pleasure
3: mate hope, yeah live cricket all all around the world sooner rather than later hopefully but uh no worries mate I hope you guys keep up this good work see you for pretty-
0: Fascinating stuff. Very well done, Freddie. Very appropriate with the questions. And and Tom, Adam Gilchrist, from Western Australia eventually as well, although you talked about playing initially for New South Wales. Give me your consideration of him, Gilly the person and Gilly the player.
2: Yeah, well, he's a, a pretty serious package both on and off the field, uh, Adam. I've had the great privilege to to have captained him in his very early uh, days for Western Australia before he broke into the Australian team, and and have built a, a strong friendship and, and relationship with him over a long long period of time. Uh, you know, as as the player, he is he is dynamic, he is uh, reliable, uh, he, he is. Uh, a natural leader he's a, he's a player that uh, a lot of people gravitated towards and he was a player that took big moments so he captured the imagination of of everyone watching uh, so he was box office when he was playing and he had a long uh, and decorated career and it certainly wasn't easy for him coming into the Australian setup after Ian Healy um, you know, held that position behind the stumps so successfully for such a long period of time. So it's always difficult for uh, a keeper in particular being a single skill in the side to, to come in uh, after someone's cast such a considerable shadow uh, over the game. But uh, he took it in his stride and, and, uh, and ran with it and, and just got better and better and better uh, off the field. Uh, You know, he's all class. Um, You know, he's a very popular person. And Freddie, you'd know this, having worked with him uh, for Fox uh, here in Australia uh, when he's done a lot of hosting and commentating for Fox uh, where his career is now. Um, He's very considerate of every single person. He's not just uh, someone just because he's one of the superstars of the game that uh, will only talk to the people that uh, are in his very thin air, but he 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 touches everyone, uh, and uh, he's a pretty special person.
0: Freddie, yeah, what I've did you him. glean? What, what did you glean from him?
1: Well, no, yeah, I mean, I just echo what Mo said there about um, what, good, what good bloke he is. I mean, as I said, I've worked with him a couple of years now. Um, uh, for Fox in Australia and, and, and as Moose said he's got you know time of day for everyone whether it be just the Crickviz analyst or if he's chatting to Shane Warne next to him in the commentary box so uh, he's a great guy and yeah a, a really interesting um, guy as well I thought there was some, some fascinating insights into the art of wicker keeping as you'd expect obviously from someone who um, as we mentioned in the chat transformed the role um, but there were some things that stood out and I think we're going to talk about them today particularly around how he saw himself and how he balanced the two disciplines of wicketkeeping and batting. Um, before we started um, press record today, we were just chatting around that. I think that that's the the really interesting thing is how he saw himself as a wicket keeper who batted, yet yeah, he averaged 50 with the bat in Test cricket um, and won many a game um, in white ball cricket too with the bat. He was a phenomenal batsman. When he said that, you know, I know that I'm going to be sort of remembered for my batting and that's almost the nature of batting itself, which was, you know, his batting was explosive, whereas keeping, um, as we'll talk about, often the guys who do it well um, aren't noticed as much. So for me, that was the, the really interesting takeaway, was that balance between wicketkeeping and batting. And he said, didn't he, that 80% of his time was spent wicketkeeping. Um, and by contrast, he mentioned someone like MS Stoney, he reckons, spends 10% of his time wicketkeeping. So that shows, just in a nutshell there, two of the sort of most famous modern day wicketkeepers, perhaps, how the role has changed. And doubtless, Gilly played a huge role in that.
2: Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. My observation uh, with regards to that is mainly down to the fact that I think that he was very comfortable and and an instinctive batsman. That, uh, yes, he needed to hit balls, but he didn't need to obsess over his batting and and the, the, the practice of his game. His game, he play very simply, see ball, hit ball. And, and that was the beauty of him, whether it was the first ball of the day or the last ball before a tee break. If it was a half-volley wide of off stump, it was a half-volley wide of off stump that was going to go for four, or at least he was going to throw the kitchen sink at it to attempt for it to go to four. But with his keeping, I think he felt that he needed to work harder on his keeping to to reach the standards he felt were going to be uh, consistent and reliable at the very top level. And as I said earlier, he he followed you know a very, very talented and skillful keeper in Ian Healy. So they're very big shoes to fill. You know, Heels was his keeping to Shane Warne was just an absolute picture. You know, it's just wonderful to watch. And so Gilly was probably very aware that uh, that was the case and he had um, he had a tough job ahead of him and he needed to work to work hard. And you would have seen Freddie uh, off the field as a as a broadcaster. He, he he doesn't leave a stone unturned. You know, so in preparation for a day in the broadcast box, uh, you know before any day's play, he is probably first there and he's very thorough with his preparation. And that was pretty much what he mirrored as a cricketer. That's what he was like as the wicket keeper. He was very, very thorough with his preparation. He didn't want to make. He didn't want any shortcuts, uh, and he wanted to make sure that his standards were always at the very, very highest.
0: So all that all that will be discussed, and what we've heard from Gilly, Tom, and and, and Freddie, are, are we saying that there are going to be individual nuances to the keepers that dot the landscape, the cricketing landscape. You're seeing Gilly obviously had. His batting, as he said, down to a natural art form. So his keeping needed more work, whereas Dhoni was different and someone else will be different. Um, how how has he changed the role of the Wicked Keeper batsman?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think what he, what he has done is made it a bit of a nightmare for every other wicketkeeper around (laughs) around the world because he set a very high standard and every every team every every selector around the the cricketing globe suddenly thought well I want a wicketkeeper that averages 52 (laughs) and also at a strike rate of about 90 um in test cricket but um yeah look he made it very he, he made it very difficult but I think uh, it was really the white ball cricket that it, it started for gilly that uh, you know that w- when he got his opportunity uh, at the top of the order i think i think people got to understand and this is the way i see it is that it, it's all well and good throwing someone an opportunity to open the batting and and expect them to you know take to it like duck to water but to me you've got to have the right uh, makeup not only from a point of view of a technique, but also just the right mindset. And Gilly, I don't think the decision at the time was taken into that much consideration. But he had all those right things because he's a very instinctive player. He liked to get on with the game early and control the game. And he did say in his in his uh, chat with Freddie that. That uh, you know he he did like to open and 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 get on top and dominate uh, against sitting and waiting and then being dictated to, um, so I think he was very well suited to that. Australia, there was an opening there for for him to come in and he, he took it with both hands, and I don't think anyone expected to see what we then saw for many many years. But he uh, created a bit of a headache for for many many people around around the globe. Uh, but that's not to say if he did stay at number six or seven, he wouldn't been he, he wouldn't have been like a Donny type wicketkeeper batsman that it, you know became one of the great finishers.
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think he mentioned um, you know the importance of of white ball cricket and sort of you know I, he was being um you know he was being modest I suppose in playing down his own role in the transformation. But he mentioned Kaluwa at Sri Lanka and how he you know opened the batting in one day cricket. And immediately place an emphasis on the wicket to therefore contribute with the bat. I think that's probably fair in white ball. But I think what Gilchrist did in in test in the Test game was was then place an emphasis on them to score runs in Test cricket too, which was um, you know uh, is a, is another challenge entirely. Um, so I, th- I think that's where you know we're talking about how he changed the game. I think that. More broadly, without Gilchrist, I think we would probably have seen a shift towards requiring more runs from wicket keepers in one day cricket and then T20 when that came about. But I think where Gilchrist's biggest legacy was, was um, asking test wicket keepers to score runs. Um, And it's something now, I, I suppose, the enormity of what he achieved across all formats is probably best summed up by the fact that no one has since been able to really replicate that. Um, there have been some very good wicket-keeper batsmen. Um, one who stands out now, who's probably most like Gilchrist, is Quinton de Kock. De Kock isn't averaging 50 in Test cricket, though. Um, and that sums up how difficult it is, I think, to do what Gilchrist did and what a, 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 a lasting legacy he's left on the game and, and will do for many years to come.
0: I think it's transported the game into an interesting stage because I, I'm certain that our listeners... Different groups of listeners will have different expectations of what the keeper batsman or batsman keeper is supposed to bring to a testing T20 team. My own observations and my own personal feelings, and I'm not saying I'm right, I'm probably totally off the mark, is that I wanted an efficient keeper. Not someone who would drop every second catch that came to him, but someone that would contribute a lot with the bat As well, And and I'm hearing that is the argument in the modern game uh, where you want, I don't notice the keepers who do an efficient job. Nobody does, I don't think. They don't stand out. But if they make three ducks in a row or they don't contribute significantly with the bat, you hear the cry, please can we have someone else who can lengthen our batting lineup. I look around the globe and I dare any one of us to identify an efficient keeper who cannot bat or whose aspiration from a team perspective. And Modes, you're, you're a coach. You've been a coach for a long time now. Shed some light and Freddy some numbers on this. Isn't almost the first perspective, almost, with every keeper, how many runs he can contribute? Contradict me. Yeah,
2: and I think that's the legacy the likes of Gilchrist have, has left in that selectors media, public expectation has been around, well, how many runs is this player going to to score? Is he going to give us that comfort of depth in our batting order? Uh, And I think because of that, we've seen, I think, some inconsistent selection and some poor selection uh, in trying to find that extra 10 or 15 runs. Because uh, that's what it basically boils down to in a test match, that 10 or 15 more runs. What would you rather have? You would rather have a keeper that is uh, that is not noticed, like as you put it, Bish, that takes every catch, takes every stumping f- efficiently, is neat behind the stumps, is, is keeping, I suppose, he's the drummer out in the middle uh, of the ground. He keeps the beat. He keeps everyone moving he energises everyone, would you rather that or would you rather those extra 10 or 15 runs? And and to me in test cricket, I think the, the efficiency of the, of the keeper behind the stumps is far more important than the t- potential 10 or 15 more runs that you might get from someone that might not be uh, as efficient keeper, but is known as a more dynamic. Where we get a lot of confusion is the crossover between white ball cricket and Test cricket and white ball form of a wicket keeper batsman suddenly becomes relevant in Test cricket but you can get away with not a part-time keeper in white ball cricket but you know a, a, an average keeper in white ball cricket if he's going to be able to you know smash the lights out with a bat you know the likes of uh, butler Bearstow. Kale, Rahul, those type of players are all very dynamic.
1: Well, I mean, that goes back to a little bit of what we spoke about um, a couple of weeks back when we did a, a podcast on fielding. And WicketKings, broadly, their job is to take catches and to affect stumpings. There are occasionally obviously going to be buys and leg buys, but I think across a test match, they're fairly insignificant. The thing that matters is taking those catches and those stumpings. And when we had our conversation about fielding, The thing that really stood out was the importance of that. And particularly in test cricket, taking your catches, taking your chances, um, taking 20 wickets. You're not going to win a test match unless you take 20 wickets um, is so important. And that's why I think that there is a real emphasis on the keeper being able to do that. And when you have a keeper who is poor at those two things, then they have to be exceptional, I think, really good with the bat to make up that difference. I think, Moods, that's sort of what you're getting at, um, is that um, you need you know, a difference of maybe five or ten runs in a batting average between two keepers is is perhaps not enough to compromise the wicket-keeping side of things. Maybe if the keeper's averaging 50, then you can excuse a few drops here and there because they're contributing significantly with the bat. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that, that making a, a split between white and red ball is, is particularly important. And again, that probably comes down to the nature of cricket. If you're a T20 keeper you're not that often um, having to take catches. You probably are having to affect some stumpings. You've seen MS Dhoni, for example, maybe stands out as a really good white ball standing up to the stumps keeper. He's not the most natural keeper. It's certainly not something that comes um, you know he a skill he was born with I wouldn't say but it's something he's worked on and over many years he became very effective particularly standing up to the spinners and he come up with some extraordinary ways of stopping the ball and I remember one time when he sort of lifted his right leg up um, you know to sort of very high and managed to stop the ball collect it and then whip the bails off you know he found a way to make it work um, so I guess yeah it, it is important to make clear that there are two they're two quite different arts white ball um, and red ball keeping and moods I'll pose a question to you a few years ago at Sunrisers, you made the decision to recruit Ridiman Sahar as, as a wicket-keeper. Um, and I think broadly, I think you might have gone on record of saying that part of that was to do with the fact that you had uh, Rashid Khan, um, who would be playing every game, and then obviously you'd probably have Shakib or Nabi in the side too. Um, in T20, uh, if you've got spinners or mystery spinners, does the wicketkeeper keeper become slightly more important? I,
2: I think he becomes critical if you've got specialist spinners like that, uh, I think just your your traditional spinner, your traditional finger spinner, not so much, but when you've got unique spinner like a Rashid Khan or a Sunil Narine, um, a Mujib from uh, Afghanistan, those sort of unique type uh, spin bowlers that are very hard to, to, to read. If you've invested an enormous amount of money and expectation in their 24 balls that they're going to produce in a 20 over game and you don't have the necessary support to take advantage of those opportunities when they're presented well you're defeating the purpose of having that person in your side to begin with you know generally those bowlers are going to bowl key overs against key opposition and if that key opposition do present a little stumping chance or a little nick that's that uh, just bounced a bit or kept low and your keepers missing those chances, well, you you know, how are you expecting to win those, win those games? So that was mainly the the logic behind Saha. We felt that he was by far the best uh, gloveman um, available. And to me, he still is probably one of the best glovemen going around in world cricket. Um, And, I think a lot of people underestimate his quality as a batsman. I don't think he fulfilled um, what he would have thought was an acceptable level with the bat um, over the time he was with the Sunrisers. But I think he's under underestimated as a one-day player. Um, I think purely because, you know, he doesn't play that power game that a lot of Uh, players like a Pant can play or a Dhoni can play and a Kael Rahul can play, obviously, when he's got
0: gloves on? I'd sort of like to play devil's advocate with that. Uh, I don't want to go too much longer on, but I'm trying to think in T20 cricket, whether it be in the IPL, for example, or whether we're talking international cricket, of... Team Saha part let's let's say saha part because of that spin quotient that you have of teams that have a wicket keeper who's relatively good but who isn't a, well seriously good batsman is, is another is too strong a point but even in Test match cricket around the globe how many how many guys aren't able to give you more than that 15 20 runs? in that middle order of the innings i'm trying to think i, I can't recall any so no, I'm I, you I, I don't
1: think there are there are any really in the modern game and i think that really is testament to the, the changes wrought by what well, we said kalawaterana and batsman at the top of the order in wonder cricket and then gilchrist the role has changed i mean i've just got some interesting numbers here just to, to give you an indication of how the uh, i suppose demands on wicket keepers have changed this is the uh, the average runs per wicket for wicket keepers in Test cricket by decade. So in the 1950s, Mm. they averaged 22. And then you move through to the 60s, 28, then up to 30, drop drop down again to 29, but then 33 in the 2000s, which is when Gilchrist comes in, 34 in the 2010s. So you can see there, just across a 50-year period, we've gone from wicketkeepers averaging sort of in the low 20s to the mid-30s, a jump of around 15 runs per wicket for wicketkeepers all around the world. And I think that that shows... Um, that you know, teams now are looking to their wicket keepers contribute more with the bat, um, and because of that, they're probably having less time dedicated to their wicket keeping. Um, and as you said there, Bish, there are very few, if any, wicket keepers now who are selected purely for their wicket keeping. And just one name I want to bring up. Um, because he's the last person I can think of who did that and um, there's a guy called Michael Bates who played for Hampshire and he retired he actually his, his career ended a few years ago but he, around the sort of mid mid to late 2000s he played for Hampshire and they had a very good T20 side he was essentially a specialist wicket keeper he didn't he must have averaged about 10-15 with the bat in fact he sometimes batted as low as number nine for Hampshire and that Hampshire side were very, very good Um, in England's T20 competition. They reached the quarterfinals six years in a row um, and won it twice. And they had a very heavy spin attack again. So there was an emphasis on the importance of of wicketkeeping because he was up to the stumps so often. Dimitri Mascarena, who I'm sure you both remember as well, another bowler who was a medium pacer, but the keeper could stand up to him. Um, So because of the emphasis of standing up to the stumps, Hampshire recognised that Michael Bates could bring real value. Um, And in fact, in a very famous one day cup final 50 over game, not T20, he stood up to the stumps in the final over of the game um, and effected a stump, a brilliant stumping in the last over that won them the tournament. Uh, And people at that point, I remember, begun to sort of question whether perhaps in T20 cricket or in short form cricket, there is a role for a specialist keeper. But I think what we've seen, despite the evidence of Michael Bates, is that generally teams now opt for that. You know, extra explosive batsmen because I think they recognise that generally, in in short form cricket in particular, there are wicket keepers are rarely involved in the game enough to make to make it so relevant that you need to completely disregard those batting skills. Um, and for that reason, I think you know we've seen now uh, a, a, a glut, if you like, of of wicket keeper batsmen who are competent keepers not bad but they're competent and their main skill is their batting it's almost the inverse of what Gilchrist was talking about with the 80-20 split I would get hazard a guess and moods you'd be better placed having seen uh, wicket keepers training at close quarters but I reckon now that split is is more likely to be the other way around
2: yeah I I think it's probably more closer to 50-50 um and I, I and I think it's a very individual thing. I think it's where you feel uh, your work needs to be put in. And I think the the biggest mistake uh, a wicketkeeper can make is neglect the drills and the hard work. Uh, and that really does start to show uh, on the on the on the stage when it comes to pressure and performance. Um, so. I think, you know, there is a tendency, particularly with a lot of franchise cricket and a lot of white ball cricket, that suddenly the, you know, the time and preparation in, in the, the, the drills that are important to maintain the integrity of what you're doing as a keeper can be compromised. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think it really is an individual thing. Uh, I would have thought that it's around 50-50, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's higher on the keeping side than the batting side. Um, but, you know, what we're seeing more and more is batsmen, you know, responsible for keeping. You know, uh, you know, Kale Rahul's one that, that I've mentioned. You've got uh, Shy Hope from the West Indies. You know, both of those guys are specialist batsmen that just happen to be able to keep. It's a bit like a specialist batsman who can bowl a few off spinners. And suddenly now they're the frontline off spinner. But really, you know, they've spent all their life as a specialist batsman. And uh, now, you know, every ball and the accountability of what they do with the ball is, is you know, incredibly important and,
0: and in the spotlight. That, that whole concept of training as well um, is very, very individual too. So, you know, as, as we, we end this up, can we have a final throw out to our listeners as to all things being equal in our team, which one is most important most? You have to choose one, which aspect is most important in the makeup of a test team or white ball
2: team? Uh, I, I personally feel your, your priority in test cricket has to be the keeper then the batsman. And in white ball cricket, whether it's 50 or 20 over cricket, I think you can you can flick that priority around and, and, and have the focus on someone that can be damaging as a, a batsman that's efficient behind the stumps. Unless you've structured your side uh, where you've got a couple of uh, specialist bowlers that are quite unique and you need that expert. Freddie?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think, I suppose, as well, um, just to add an element to that as well, home conditions maybe are, are quite important. Um, uh, you know, If you're on a pitch that um, that does a lot, um, whether that be spinning or seaming, or maybe goes up and down, or can be slow and low, or it just basically presents unusual challenges, then perhaps the importance of the keeper, um, I'm talking whiteboard here, comes into it more. Um, but otherwise, I, I, I'm in agreement with moods. And I think you can kind of see that in the nature of players who... Um, who do, for example, India um, are more than happy to occasionally give Kale Rahul the gloves in white ball cricket. I'd be very surprised if he ever takes the gloves in a test match as as a frontline keeper, just because the roles are different. Um, You're asked far more, Your keeping skills are put under far more pressure in the Red Bull game. You're in the game a lot more often. I mean, just if you think about it on a basic level, how often you touch the ball. (laughs) You know, in in Red Bull cricket, batsmen are often leaving it alone. It's coming through to you. In, In the white ball game, you're just not involved in the game quite as much. Again, the, with the big caveat of, I think, against quality spinners, standing up, there is real value to be had. I think we've seen that with Dhoni over the years. Dhoni, as I said earlier, he's not the most naturally gifted keeper, but standing up to what, Ashwin, Jadeja, uh, and then now more recently Kool Deep and Shahal, he's affected some stumpings um, that I think many other keepers wouldn't be able to do. And if you can do that, there's clear value. Um, so I think it depends a lot on the makeup of your side. Really, is 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 my in um, my my way of avoiding answering that question. <laughs>
0: sitting on the fence is sometimes a nice place to be well we let our listeners decide what is is more important to them thank you very much tom thank you very much freddie for your insight and as always freddie we're going to close with you reminding our listeners as to where they can listen and and what marks they can leave on our own podcast
1: sure. yeah well we're yeah on all podcasting platforms spotify itunes pocketcasts um and yeah once again it would be great if you could leave a review um and a rating um please please do and and and, and if you enjoyed the podcast share it online and then let your friends know about it
0: and thank you very much for gilly for not having a bookshelf behind him in keeping with the the three exponents on this podcast here as well thank you very much for listening.